Well, one of my favorite, if, if David Nystrom, Dr. Nystrom is teaching someplace and I'm able to do it, I go there because he's one of my favorite teachers. He's a dear friend of our church and of our, uh, our staff. In fact, I told you last week that Pastor Jeff, Pastor Ben, and I, and our spouses were treated to a gift that let us go to Israel. And we said, well, we want to take a brilliant professor with us. But none were available, so we called David. <laughs> and we said, hey, man, you want to you wanna do this and bring, um, bring your wife and eight of us? We'll go around and tour some of these sites, but we'll have your uh, insights there. And so we would go and we would sit in, say, the Garden of Gethsemane, and David would bring a devotional and, in context, read and teach. And we had some fabulous times together. Anytime we can get him here to give you the treat of hearing from him, we do it. And today's one of those days. So, Dave, come on up. Take us someplace. Well, uh, um, good morning. Um, I'm getting a little emotional just hearing my friend Art. Um, it's a gift, right? Being in connection uh, with people. And uh, I think your staff is as good as it gets. That's my own personal opinion. So... Um, so we're going to look at a text today. It's from We're going to look at a text today. It's from the book of Acts. Last service I said Luke and started reading from the book of Acts and there was considerable confusion. So uh, it's from Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. And while you, you can re read along while I, while I read it, um, but I'd like to, I'd like to suggest that uh, one of the features of this passage is that it is studded um, with powerful symbols, even though we don't always recognize it. And one of the things, one of the features of, of symbols within a, within a culture is that they make sense to people within that culture. But if you're not from that culture, you might not even realize you're looking at a powerful symbol. You miss it entirely. So I taught at a university in Sweden about uh, 15, 18 years ago, and I, and I happened to show a slide one day of, uh, of a depiction of a donkey and an elephant running into each other, head on to each other, and uh, red, white, and blue with white stars at the bottom. And I asked my Swedish students, what does this mean? And the best they could come up with was American animal husbandry. <laughs> so, I mean, they had no idea what that meant. But anyone who spent any time at all in, in, in our culture would know that that's a political cartoon, etc. So I, I, I'm, I'd like to suggest that there are features of the text we're going to read together, um, which... Uh, are replete with powerful symbols. Uh, because a part of the text that under, undergirds this is um, some disparity between the apostles, the disciples, the early Christian believers, and what those symbols mean, and whether or not they've been fulfilled, and, uh, and what the authorities think. So we're going to unpack some of that. So we're going to do, I think it's three or four, four stages today. First of all, uh, I'm going to read the text, and you can read along. Second, I'm going to ask you, what do you see? 
So this will be a interactive, this is, that'll be the interactive portion of the morning. Uh, and then um, I'd like to spend a little time uh, uh, talking about the various themes together with you, so thinking together with you about what those themes are, and then finally, uh, what it might mean for us as far as a takeaway. Does that make sense? Okay, two people agree that this is a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah, okay, three, that's good, three. That's, frankly, uh, I generally need uh, no affirmation at all, so, so that was good that we have three people affirming where we're going to go. Oh, by the way, yeah, I, I, I forgot. Um, so my name's Dave. I said that. Uh, uh, married. I've been married 36 years to Christina, who married far below her station in life. Uh, we have one daughter, Annika, who's 20. Um, I, I do have a PhD. I did my PhD. Oh, I'm a covenant pastor. Grew up actually in the Bay Area, uh, on the peninsula, in, at the very northern end of what became Silicon Valley. Uh, and, but in a similar, you know, pretty similar uh, topography up in the hills a little bit. Um, is that helpful to know that about me? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, and uh, yeah, I did my PhD work in two areas, uh, Roman social history and New Testament theology. Because I, I, in seminary, my New Testament professors knew an awful lot about the New Testament, but they generally didn't know anything about the world of the New Testament. And I was particularly interested, because I'd been a, been a pastor, uh, well, what about the effects of the message of the gospel, not just you know, on people's minds and in textbooks, but on how you actually live it out? So I, I wrote my dissertation on the question of women and slaves in the first century Roman provinces, and what difference would Christianity make? So if you were a slave or a woman and you became, you, know, you became a believer, let's say you're owned by a family and you end up going to a little house church and the people who own you become believers also, hmm, that sets for some really interesting social dynamics. Uh, so what, 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 would the, what change would that make? So that means you have to understand something of the cultural norms, etc. So anyway, yes, I have a PhD. But I think I'd had it maybe, uh, uh, maybe six months when I was at my brother's house and his daughter, who was then seven, had a friend over. And I heard her explain to her friend who I was. That's my Uncle David. He's a doctor, but not the kind who does anybody any good. So that was, that was really, really helpful in properly framing <laughs> how important um, my degree was. So the text uh, before us is um, Acts chapter uh, uh, five. Beginning in verse 17, and uh, you probably know that's after the Ananias and Sapphira passage and, uh, and then about the apostles' healing. So here we go, you ready? Then the high priest and all the, uh, his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go. Stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. 
At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent them to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God has exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he carefully addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and all his followers were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it'll fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Um, comments? Observations? Thank you. This is all I got planned, by the way, so, you know, <laughs> otherwise, here... Yes. Yeah, it's a bad thing to interfere with God's work. Yeah, you put that really well. That's like the big sign that says stop, you know, don't back up, severe tire damage or something. Like it's yeah, that's really clear. Yeah. Yeah, they rejoice at being persecuted. That's generally my response. I mean, that's just, that is so interesting. What else do you see? They were undeterred. 
by these very powerful people, knowing that their God was more powerful. Something had happened that convinced them that God was at work and that they were agents of that activity. Exactly right. And that made them undeterred, I think. Is that... Oh, you should use emojis. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what emojis are. I've never sent them on purpose myself, but... <laughs> yeah, I'm 59, and like, I just don't understand the world anymore. So, yeah, uh, I'm sorry, someone was... So the, guard, the guards have a, come to an awareness that God, there's a God out there, real, and what he's doing and what he's active in doing is way bigger than anything they could imagine themselves. What else do you see? Yeah? There was an angel that appeared before them and told them to go and preach this. So if you have an angel standing there and the doors are open and the guards let you out, I yeah. think you've got... To yeah, so this is God's direction, go, and, we're, and to the temple courts. Right. Anything else strike you? Oh, yes. Um, Jesus wasn't the first person claiming to be someone with followers. I'm sorry? Jesus wasn't the first person claiming to be someone with followers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on a totally academic side note, which, sorry. Uh, but Jesus, yeah, is not the first one to gather disciples. Uh, but what's really interesting, among other things, about the about this story of Jesus is um, there, there were plenty of other Messiah figures who gathered disciples and then they were executed. And in every single case, their disciples followed somebody else. The case of Jesus, just as a his, matter of historical record, is that his is the only case in which followers of a messianic figure continue to follow him after his death. So uh, uh, just in t- even if you're a secular historian, you have to, that, that's a question that you need to say, hmm, what could, co- what could have caused that? So yeah, that's exactly right. Thinking about how they were flogged, and that it's interesting because they didn't really mention, you know, even though we were flogged, but they were just flogged, and they went on even after that to just praise God. Yeah, flogged is... Um, some kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, being whipped, and usually a flogging would, would, in, would involve, uh, 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 with every stroke, to be like multiple lashes. And th- it wasn't like they could, you know, the Romans went to the flog store and bought, you know, I mean, so these are, I mean, could, there could be great variety, but it's, it's, it's way more severe than anything I've ever experienced. Yeah. Yeah. He actually did. Yeah. So yeah. he, he yeah. was resurrected. When yeah. We know that too today. Yeah. So the, I mean, obviously the resurrection demonstrates, verifies something. What else do you notice? Yeah. 
I noticed that there was uh, open-mindedness in his skepticism of the high priest. He wasn't closed, but he could. He was able to say this could be or could not be. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the sterling um, insights to be had from this text. Um, sorry. Uh, of all people, um, Oliver Cromwell, who isn't generally a moral exemplar we should all follow unquestioningly, uh, but he once said to the Scottish Presbyterians, I beg you from the depths of my bowels, consider the possibility you might be wrong. I think, that's a, I think that principle is, a, is, a, is a, a very healthy spiritual principle. If you're certain that you're God's agent and you're never self-critical, you can end up doing a lot of, <laughs> a lot of damage. So this question of, Lord, this is what I think it is, where I ought to go, but help me be sure. And however that works for you, friends you know, that, that can help you discern what God's purpose is or whatever, but a kind of godly skepticism or agnosticism is, is pretty healthy. Anything, anything else you notice? Yes. Yeah, the plans of human beings will fail, but God's plans will not be worth it. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yes? I'm curious that they agreed to leave the men alone and let them go, but instead they flogged them and gave them the same warning again. Yeah, so they didn't really follow Gamaliel's advice. But they let them go. But didn't they have to flog them to sort of set an example, like, you know, so that other, you know, arms of all this wouldn't... Yeah, so a kind of realpolitik thing. I mean, it just, this is what you'd have to do to, to maintain order. Yeah, we're still in charge. <laughs> yeah. On the surface. Yeah. Have you ever been in a position at work or in some place where you're in authority where you feel like you have to do something to maintain order? Or even as a parent? <laughs> yeah, so these, these are kind of moral, these are, there's a whole host of, of moral dilemma. Is that a word, dilemma? <laughs> Dilemmas, uh, <laughs> dilemma-uhs, uh, that this text um, suggests, puts before us. Anything else you notice? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. It, it appears that they had they realized they're not there, but didn't know where they were. 
So, but that's a great observation. What's your name? Mason. Mason may end up being stand, standing up here someday. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to do now is spend a little bit of time um, talking through some of the themes I think we've just talked about, and then uh, to finish our, uh, uh, the sermon, uh, come up with three sort of, I think, takeaway points. Is that okay? I don't think you have a choice, by the way, but I thought I'd ask. Is that okay? So some of you have mentioned this idea of, of, of I'll put it, threat. The message is a threat to the order. It's a threat to the order for uh, the religious authorities. The fact that they're told to go to the temple precinct is really interesting. So as a symbol, you know, um, if, if God is king, which of course God is in their world, then everything is theological. Does that make sense? If God is king, then politics is theological, economics is theological. So we, often, we sometimes say, oh, Jesus didn't say anything about the political order. That really isn't quite true, because their world is one in which God is king. I mean, Jesus asks us to think deeply about it, right? Whose image do you see on the coin? Caesar's. Give to God what is God's, and Caesar's what is Caesar. That asks us to think deeply about it, because everything is God's. And Caesar arrogates to himself, rulers do to themselves, the power to issue coinage, etc. But that puts us as believers in this intense moral dilemma of discerning what truly is God's. Where's my higher priority? Does that make sense? So um, it's a threat. There's this question of obedience to the angel, to the word of God, speaking. There's this theme of, of the spirit, right? But that um, it's, it's in a new and fresh way. One that if you, if you think about it, they hadn't encountered before. And I, I don't just mean in their own lifetime, but they hadn't encountered before. Now, a part of that goes back to... Um, uh, to this notion that you find crystallized in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel uh, 32, where God says to the people, I'm going to have to hallow my own name. Because what's happened is the people living around you have drawn false conclusions about me. And it ain't their fault. Because they've been watching you to learn about me. But because you haven't been living according to my, who I am, they've drawn false conclusions about me. So I'm going to need to hallow my own name because you haven't been living in such a way for my name to be hallowed. But then God says, but there's going to come a day where I'm going to take out of you that heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. And this, of course, is what happens at the crucifixion and resurrection. For the first time since the garden, since the fall, the spirit of the living God can come and dwell within us. And that spirit, the disciples, the apostles say, look, here's the sign we've been waiting for. 
and you're watching it happen, but you don't connect the dots. Does that make sense? So it's the Spirit. God at work. But there's this notion of us missing. We have eyes to see, but we're looking, not seeing. So we've been, my wife, Christina, and I have been married for 36 years, and um, I know it's a long time. And I, I, um, I asked her to marry me after this event, where I was, we were at her parents' home, it was late, we were kissing on the front porch, I remember that part quite clearly, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, saying things like, you know, how much we cared about each other. And, uh, and then Christina said these words to me, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. To which I responded, I like you too. <laughs> By the way, anyone, any man not married yet, this is, this is, goes under the category, don't do this, okay? This is, and, and what, as I thought, I mean, as I was driving home, I thought, I mean, almost, not immediately, but within about 10 miles, like, like Homer Simpson, you know? Uh, the signs were there, but I didn't see them. So this is one of those themes, like the signs are there but we're not seeing. So big ideas, takeaways, okay? Number one, there's a plan. There's a plan. Now, in the New Testament, in Paul, he will say, wow, God has had this, it's in Ephesians 2 and 3 especially, very powerfully, he uses five words, supercharged terms, synonyms. Uh, will, purpose, plan, hidden design, to say God's had this plan all along. But because we have been looking at, at, at other things, we've had other priorities, we've missed it. So the plan is um, of this fulfillment theology that is, that is powerful in, in the book of Acts. The age of fulfillment has dawned. We've been waiting for it, and it's finally dawned, but somehow, even though our, our eyes are open, we haven't seen the signs. It's Davidic descent. Have you noticed this guy, Jesus, is of Davidic descent? That was there all along. God had outlined that, but we've missed it. By virtue of his resurrection, Jesus has been exalted, you know that the tomb was empty. And can you deny that the Holy Spirit is at work right now? You can't. Why aren't you able to come to the right conclusion? Does that make sense? So they're arguing not just, not just on the sake of power as, as power, but how else could these things be happening except by the Spirit? Are we really so arrogant that we would say, no, God can't act that way? It's against my rules. 
So there's a plan. There's also a threat. What they're doing is a threat to their way of understanding the world. You know, Jesus calls himself son of man. And people routinely say, what are you talking about? Because it wasn't a then standard messianic designation. Now one of the reasons he chooses it is because it wasn't a then standard messianic designation, so he could explain it. Have you ever had the experience of saying, here's my job title, and people just all of a sudden say, oh, you're totally categorized? So Jesus doesn't want to be categorized. He chooses chooses a, a title, son of man, that was vague so he could fill it with his own meaning, but also what the son of man is about in the Old Testament, Daniel 7. I don't know if you've ever spent much time with Daniel. Daniel 7 is one of the, I don't know, seven or eight most important Old Testament patches for understanding the New Testament. It's a little like the scene in Jaws before the shark first strikes, where there's the music, you know. So Daniel 7, it opens up and Daniel says, I had a vision at night, right? Night is, night is when bad stuff happens, right? Freddy Krueger doesn't attack at noon in the Safeway frozen food section. You know, it's at night. So it's at night, and the sea is stirred up. Now the sea is emblematic of chaos in the, old, in the Hebrew world, but then the sea's stirred up. So I don't, you remember in Revelation where it says after, in after God's victory, what, what, is it, what do we hear? That the saints cast down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. And then at the end, the new heaven and the new earth is described, and it says there's no more sea. So in Daniel 7, the sea is stirred up, it's angry, and out of the sea come beasts. And they chew up human beings. Body parts go flying from their mouths. And then God says, there's a courtroom scene. I've had enough. And God takes away authority from the beasts and gives it to one like a son of man who brings God's kingdom to earth. So the basic idea here is this. At creation, or God gave to our first parents, I'm trusting you to run the earth. And what have we done? Collectively, we've created systems, political, social, economic, sociocultural, that dehumanize. And at some point, God's going to say, I'm going to bring, I'm going to make my kingdom invade the world. So by calling himself Son of Man, that's one of the things Jesus is conveying. I am God's agent to bring God's kingdom. That's a threat, right? I I don't think I made that strongly enough. (laughs) Because, yeah, I mean, the way we have organized collectively, us human beings. So it's a threat. It's a promise. So, it begs the question then if the kingdom of God is a threat to our way of understanding the world. 
um, Nietzsche of all people, well, he, he was deeply worried about the moral order after the, the collapse of a belief in Christianity in Europe. And one thing he actually worried about was that without a coherent moral order, human beings would descend into what he called the last men, the last people, where all we were interested in is amusing ourselves and filling our lives with stuff. Ouch. We live in a culture now, which, which is sometimes called neoliberalism, and the idea with neoliberalism is, uh, the explanation is, um, the only things that matter are things that could be monetized. There's a guy named Tim Jackson. Uh, I don't believe he's a Christian. He, he teaches, uh, he's the professor of sustainable development at the University of Surrey in the UK. And he's written a book called um, uh, Prosperity Without Growth. And he asks a couple of questions. Why is it that with so much stuff, we're still not satisfied? So for someone who's not patently a believer to ask that question, it's really pretty powerful. So I'd like to suggest that the gospel, this story, also places before us a, a responsibility to, to, to think deeply about how we operate and whether we are agents that the world would see as a threat. Are we committed to something besides that, that system that we have collectively created? Does that make sense? It asks that of each one of us. But it's also a promise. It's a promise that the Spirit if we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, the spirit of the living God actually dwells in us right now. The Roman historian Livy once wrote, it was at the very beginning of his first book, he said, in recent years, wealth has made us greedy. And self, that's a crazy idea, wealth has made us greedy. <laughs> The more we have actually, we're not satiated, we just, we want more. In recent years, wealth has made us greedy and self-indulgence has led us through every form of sensual excess to be, as it were, pursuing our own deaths. We know it's killing us, but we don't have the capacity to stop. Now that is a secular version of the Christian gospel. We're broken and we can't fix ourselves. But the spirit living within us, the promise of this passage is that the spirit living within us, if we are awake and alert and alive to that presence, if we cultivate that, we can live free of the power of that selfish inclination. That's, that's pretty good news. Live free from it. But, it, but what's required is that we, we cultivate that. We pay attention to it. We make space for it. 
The great St. Augustine wrote, Narrow is the dwelling place of my soul, O God. Your spirit has a home in my heart, but I've got that spirit cramped in a 408 square foot apartment where the bathroom sink is also the kitchen sink. And then he wrote, do thou expand it. Dilatator obstate, like dilatory. Help me make it crazy big. So the promise is this. We can live free from our addiction to ourselves and live into the presence and power of the living God who sacrificed everything for you. Not only that, but did you notice the curious phraseology that God grants forgiveness and repentance? I think we're used to God granting forgiveness, but that God grants repentance makes it possible. True repentance is possible. The Lord God is in the business of forgiving you. and washing you clean. I need that. Are you like me? There's one other person like me in this room. Okay, three or four, five or six. Right? That's the power of it. Because even though the Spirit of the living God lives within us, we're still confused in this life. But that spirit is always there, active and alert. And that's why God grants repentance, because it's possible. We can live free from it. It's a threat, this message, to the way the world is orchestrated and operates. But it's a promise. And it's an invitation to live in such a way that through the tone of our voice and the touch of our hands, the people we meet come to recognize the power and spirit of the living God. That is the kingdom of God, right? Kingdom. Kingdom of God isn't a place. It's wherever God's will is understood and obeyed. May that be true in our hearts and in the ambit of our lives. Amen? Amen. Thank you, God. No, no, no. Thank you, but thank you, God, for your love for us, for your crazy forgiveness that never stops for your understanding of our woundedness, our brokenness. Help us to have eyes to see, we pray. In your name, amen.